reading this passage, there were plenty moments where I absolutely was in stitches. My ribs were hurting. One of those was this point where Paul says, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. I was thinking to myself, I read this when I wasn't married. Why did I not register this in my mind? My wife will tell me off for that later. It's good to be back. It's good to be with you. And this being my second Friday after leave, I'm thoroughly pleased to be here praying with you and sharing communion with you. So thank you for all your prayers. The children are settling in well and the family is adjusting to um, new strangers around. Um, Reading through the passage and praying about it, I was stuck for where to go. But I was introduced to a new phrase, which I only heard on Wednesday. And this is the phrase, motivated reasoning. Motivated reasoning occurs when you follow the facts that support what it is that you desire the most and ignore the facts that don't support what you desire the most. Motivated reasoning. So, for instance, um, you're trying to lose weight and someone gives you an article that's talking about the benefits of chocolate and you read through the whole article to look for things that would help you justify eating that piece of chocolate that you know that you shouldn't. Or, for instance, you're trying to reduce the amount of alcohol you drink, and then someone posts an article that's talking about the benefits of a glass of wine every evening. Or you find that scripture by Paul to Timothy going, ah, a glass of wine is good for your tummy. (laughs) Motivated reasoning. You want to build a house. You want the house to have a nice view. You like the seaside, so you build your house on sand. Motivated reasoning. The house looks nice when the sun's up. But when the rain comes, the facts that you ignored about the weather changing, the facts that you ignored about sand not actually being able to hold anything, that's why you can sift it, come to bear and... With a wet head, you lament watching the house that has all your towels get swept away. Motivated reasoning. Uh, It made sense of uh, my daughter. She doesn't like going to bed. Uh, She goes to bed in the end, but this is how she starts off. She goes, "Um, I don't want to have pudding. Now, we all know that she wants to have pudding, but she knows if she has pudding, next thing is to brush her teeth, next thing is to go to sleep, isn't it, after changing? So she'll put off the first thing. Uh, I don't want to brush my teeth. I don't want to change into my pajamas. Motivated reasoning. Sending a one after the other. Sending a one after the other. It changes and skews how you assess the world around you. And changes and skews how you receive and hold on to the things that are given to you. It changes and skews how you receive what you're being taught. So a good example is if we were to do a straw poll in church of people who know all the verses where God talks about being forgiving, being kind, being loving, being generous, being faithful, saving everybody and all that. Those are the verses we know off by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. No? We know those verses. We know the verses that say that God is love. We know the verses that say the joy of the Lord is our strength. We know the verses that say his peace passes understanding. 
But if you ask about the verses that talk about judgment, that talk about um, repentance, that talk about the suffering of Christ and we're entering into Lent, the things that he endured in those two days of torture and eventually his, his crucifixion, which killed him. Those are not the verses we really want to look into. Those are the verses we pass by. We will know how many people were at the manger when he was born. We will know how many people came, came to the tomb the day he resurrected. But the type of whips he was whipped with, we put at the back of our mind. We're motivated to forget. Because the truth is, that's where the cost is of the love that we celebrate receiving truly lies. What's this got to do with what we're reading now? When Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, two things are going on. In his mind, Paul, at this point, I think, believes that Christ is going to come back. He truly believes that in his lifetime, Jesus is going to come back. He really believes that. So when he says things like, this present world is going to pass away, he genuinely believes that in his lifetime, the day of the Lord will come and there will be judgment. And what he can see in the Corinthians is motivated reasoning. And all the way, he's been talking to them about uh, uh, Apollos and following Cephas and and trying to justify sexual immorality and trying to work, work out the scriptures in a way that allows them to do the things that they really desire to do. He can see they're motivated in their reasoning. But he's pressing. Because of the present crisis, he says. Because of the present crisis. That's verse 26. He wants them to be aware that the rains will come. So the houses that they've built need not be on sand but on solid rock. Because of the present crisis, assess the situation that you are in currently, not based on motivational reasoning and the circumstances that are present, but based on the things that are to come, the inevitable crisis. So that's the first layer. He's going, Jesus is going to come back. Judgment is going to come for the things that you're doing. So assess how you are responding to what you desire. If you want to get married, don't just look at what you desire. What's going to happen when you stand before the king of kings? Will you have responded to his motivation, to his calling, his direction, his purposes for your life in entering this relationship? Because in the end, when you stand before him, he will be asking of your heart what you did. That doesn't mean you shouldn't get married. It just means do it for the right reasons. Build your house on solid rock. Because those who marry in this life will face many troubles, and I want to spare you this. The second layer of crisis for Paul is that at this point in the the story of the Corinthians, there is a famine across the empire. So the question is, what are you going to do in response to what's happening around you? The things that you thought you need in order to sustain you actually aren't going to sustain you. If you thought you needed 12 flocks of cattle, now with famine in the land, you wish you had just one. A heifer who would provide you with milk 
and you had to just feed a little bit and you had better the little with righteousness than much gained. Because of the present crisis, assess what your reasoning is so that you're not motivated by the wrong things. If you don't want to get married, that's fine too. But are you following what God is asking you to do? Because because of the present crisis, you will be asked about what you did with the resources that were given to you. Motivational reasoning encounters crisis every single time. If you don't save when the rainy day comes, you will be in trouble. If you don't pay your rent, you will be kicked out of your house. If you don't pay your mortgage, it will be repossessed. If you don't uh, act in kindness and affectionate uh, love towards the person beside you, you will see them slowly seep into despair. If you motivate yourself to miss the signs of those who are in need around you, to miss the signs of social inequality and injustice in the world, people not knowing who the king of kings is and the effect it can have on their lives, the crisis will come when the king will come and say to you, I came to you, you rejected me. But Lord, I never saw you whatsoever you do to the least of my brothers as you do unto me. Assess your present life from the impending crisis. And if your motivation is in line with God's, then it stops being a crisis and stays a hope. I cannot wait to meet my king so that I can sit before his feet and listen to more of who he is and bask in the mercy I'm already receiving now rather than live in the terror of the judgment I am going to receive. Assess what is to come. Do not be skewed by motivated reasoning so that when the Lord comes, your reasoning and his reasoning are one. Are one. Now, how do we bring that into today? How do we bring that into today? The question I'd ask is, if the world was going to end in two weeks, what would be the most valuable thing to you? If you have one in mind, say it. What would be the most valuable thing to you if the world was going to end in two weeks? What would you actually hold on to? Your references. Your faith. That's the starting point. Everything else is ripe for generosity. Everything else is ready to be let go of, to be given away. How do we keep ourselves in the space of open generosity? We remember, first, the crisis that was ours that is no longer ours. Death, the thing that should be the end of everything for us, is no longer that. And Christ tells us to do this often, and we're going to do that today. Repentance by the cross to say to God, thank you for making sure that I don't look to my end with despair, but with hope is the one place where we begin to understand the great gifts that we have received. You have family with you? Thank God for that. You have a roof over your head? Be grateful for that. Be grateful for that. You have a faith? Be thankful for that, that God counts you one of his family. 
And let that generosity spur you to kindness. And that kindness spur you to extend God's mercy to those who are around you. Let the work he has done for you be at the tip of your tongue. And then let's see what effect 12 can have in the years to come. I hope the approach to the table today is peppered with repentance, peppered with hope, peppered with a change from motivational reasoning to a question about what God is leading us to do this week, this year, and the rest of our time in this life until the day he comes back. May he bless his word to us today. Amen.